Hello, I'm Ryan Tate, and welcome to History of the Pacific Northwest, Episode 2, Since Time Immemorial. Today we'll be analyzing the various Native American groups that called the Pacific Northwest home for thousands of years before Europeans set foot on the American continent. To start, I would like to give a brief overview of the peopling of the Americas before I get into some of the specifics of the Northwest. It is important to note that little is known for certain about Native American prehistory. No tribe of North America kept a written record or had developed a system of writing. There is much speculation regarding why Native Americans never developed writing, but it is not for their lack of intelligence. The people of North America were masters of their environment. They utilized the land and its resources to suit all their needs, established elaborate systems of government, and had distinct cultures. Writing is not by any means an automatic development of any society. The most plausible reason that Native North Americans didn't establish a system of writing is that they had no need to keep records. Most tribes shared what they had and worked together to take care of their people. Compare this to the Aztec, Inca, and Maya empires of Mexico and Western South America. Their organization and conquest required them to keep extensive records which are paramount to managing an empire. Although no written record exists pertaining to North American natives, some oral traditions have persevered and they are an excellent resource of the past. Archaeologists believe people came to North America approximately 16,500 years ago, during the last ice age. Oceans were lower due to so much of the Earth's water being frozen in glaciers and the Arctic. With the oceans so low, a land bridge existed between modern-day Siberia and Alaska. We call it a bridge, but it was likely a significant landmass the width of Russia. People likely settled the landmass, and generations of people slowly migrated east. At the end of the Ice Age, when the glaciers and Arctic ice began melting, the area flooded until the oceans rose so high that Siberia and Alaska were separated by ocean. Once people lived in North America, it was only a matter of generational migration throughout both North and South America. Tribes settled, grew, split, and migrated until the whole of both continents were settled. The people there lived completely isolated from Europe, Africa, and Asia for thousands of years. Before sustained contact with Europe in the 1500s, it is estimated that North and South America's total population was between 60 and 90 million people. Europe at the same time was home to approximately 60 million people. This meant the two continents had relatively similar populations. The Pacific Northwest was home to many distinct tribes and settlements. I will be classifying the Native Americans into three separate cultural groups as described by Carlos Arnaldo Schwantes in his book on the Pacific Northwest. Most of my base knowledge comes from Schwantes. Understand that none of these cultural groups I'm about to describe are uniform in any way. The people that are classified all developed unique traditions, languages, and government structures. Our cultural groups help us to better understand locations, diet, whether a tribe was sedentary or nomadic, and how they made their living. The three groups we will examine in turn are the coastal Native Americans, Native Americans of the Plateau, and Native Americans of the Great Basin. The Pacific Northwest was home to around 125 different tribes who spoke over 50 languages. The cultural boundaries are indistinct and arguable among historians. 
When Euro-Americans made contact with tribes of the Pacific Northwest, they often misspelled or invented names to keep track of who was where when making treaties. Native Americans did not prescribe to the same concept of land ownership that Europeans did. Native Americans had a concept of territory, and some tribes fought wars over territorial boundaries. However, they saw themselves as custodians of the land that was communally used by the tribe. Neither the natives or Europeans understood each other when it came to owning land. The first cultural group was the natives of the coast. The coast had a mild climate, lush and dense forests for timber, and the abundance of the sea. Coastal natives were physically isolated from those inland by mountains, and had little need to venture east from their dwellings. Some of the most well-known tribes of this cultural group include the Nootka, Ho, Quileute, Macaw, Puyallup, Talawas, Chetco, and Chinook. Natives of the coast were excellent woodworkers. Their longhouses were strong and sturdy, and many like the Nootka carved the elaborate totem poles that have become a famous staple of the Native American image. Additionally, they designed ornate wooden masks that were used for plays and performances. These masks had moving parts that could be manipulated to show different emotions. They also built canoes and ships large enough to go whale hunting. Whale hunting was among one of the most dangerous jobs and came with a lot of honor and prestige. Many of the coastal people participated in whale hunts. Their traditions and methods varied, but I would like to paint a picture of what a whale hunting expedition was like. Firstly, whale hunting was not something that anyone could jump in a canoe and go do. Tribes often had only a few who were designated to lead a hunt. Before a hunt, the leader would often engage in days or sometimes weeks of ritual preparedness. This could include prayer, bathing, and even fasting. When the time came, a crew of usually around eight would paddle into the ocean and track their prey. The gray whale, which they hunted, was migratory, and they often swim close to the coastline. To this day, whale watching season draws many to the Oregon coast. The gray whale is a fairly safe creature. However, when attacked or if their young are threatened, they can be aggressive and dangerous. They can capsize boats and knock their would-be hunters overboard. Once the hunters had chosen their mark, they would match its speed and remain close. When the whale surfaced for air, it would be harpooned. Hunters often aimed for the shoulder, which made it difficult for the whale to swim. Floats made from sealskin were attached to the harpoon line, making it hard for the whale to swim and dive. These floats were essentially large balloons. Once harpooned, the rowers in the canoe would paddle backwards to avoid thrashing fins. The hunters would follow their sealskin floats and wait for the whale to tire itself out and hit it with additional harpoons if necessary. This could take hours, and sometimes even an entire day. When the whale gave up, the hunters would stab it with a lance, killing the whale. Then a diver would swim down into the frigid water and lace the whale's mouth shut. That way, its stomach would not fill with liquid, causing the whale to sink. The hunters would then tow the whale back to the village. Depending on how well the first harpoon hit its mark, the whale might have to be towed for either several miles or maybe even 8 to 10. Like I said, whale hunting, no menial task at all. Upon return, there would be songs of welcome and praise for the hunters as well as thanks and praise for the whale and its sacrifice. Every part of the whale was used to make tools, storage containers, and whale oil was an extremely valuable commodity. Due to the plentiful nature of the sea, most natives of the coast did not cultivate crops. 
They foraged from time to time, but primarily relied upon fishing to sustain them. They also hunted deer and likely other creatures native to the coastal region. Many of the coastal people even bred a dog known as the Salish Wool Dog. This now extinct dog breed had a thick woolly coat that could be sheared and woven together into fabric, not unlike a sheep's coat. Most coastal groups would go back and forth between two permanent settlements. Typically, one was reserved for the summer months and one for the winter months. How they did this was an impressive feat of engineering. They built permanent frames for their longhouses that had removable panels on the sides and roof. When it came time for a village to head to their winter quarters, they removed the siding and roofing and other boards and then reattached them onto the frames of their other homes. Impressive, considering they did not use nails when building their homes. War was rare among the different coastal tribes. The people who lived further north tended to have more conflict than that of the more southern groups. This was likely due to resource availability. Feuds could be generational though, and would often mean hatred and conflict until one exterminated the other. Most coastal groups were peaceful with one another though, and often rode up and down the coast to trade. The coastal tribes were renowned for their elaborate ceremonies. Their plentiful food harvests and permanent settlements gave the people more time to dedicate to the arts. Actors would put on elaborate stage performances and plays, which included the movable masks I had mentioned, as well as tunnels and trap doors for characters to appear and disappear from. They also made kelp pipes to throw and amplify voices. Most tribes had ritualistic songs that they would sing for almost any occasion. How fun. Many people wonder what it would be like to live in a musical. Well, the coastal Native Americans did not have to. Their continuous singing and dancing often confused the Europeans who first contacted them. I mean, come on. Loosen up, you guys. Many of the coastal tribes were extremely class conscious and lived in a highly stratified society. Material wealth was the greatest indicator of status, and a great deal of stock was put into material possessions. Due to their permanent dwellings, coastal natives were able to amass more property than most Native American groups. When fur traders first visited the Nootka and other coastal people, the natives were not impressed with beads and useless trinkets of which they had plenty. They proved themselves to be shrewd traders and businessmen, but more on that later. An interesting ceremonial tradition that coastal people engaged in was called the potlatch. As I said, material possessions were the biggest indicator of status in coastal communities. During a potlatch, the host would hold a banquet and welcome everyone to come join in. They would then give away and sometimes destroy some of their belongings just to show how insignificant it was compared to their vast wealth. The idea was that the more you could destroy or give away, the wealthier and more important you were. Wealthy individuals would hold potlatches to reaffirm or increase their status in the community. Potlatches grew in frequency and became more elaborate after first contact with European traders. With access to a more diverse range of goods, leaders were more excited to flaunt their material wealth and increase their status. I'm a fan of this ceremony, and Jeff Bezos... If by some chance you are listening and considering a potlatch, I think your prestige would increase drastically. All three of our cultural groups in the Pacific Northwest fished for salmon. These salmon were an abundant source of food for many of the natives. The life cycle of the Pacific salmon is a miraculous one. They hatch in stream beds where they feed and grow, they make their way downstream, and once they reach maturity, swim out into the ocean. They can spend years in the ocean, migrating throughout the Pacific. 
They then returned to the very stream they hatched from, swimming up rivers and even jumping rapids just to get back home. Salmon will not stop until they reach the exact spot they were born. Then the adults lay their eggs and die. Many of the coastal natives believe the salmon to be the incarnation of a powerful race of supernatural beings. Bones had to be disposed of respectfully and carefully. I can only imagine what it must have been like to see salmon migrations a thousand years ago, jumping through the rivers in huge numbers. The next cultural group are the Native Americans of the Plateau. The natives belonging to this cultural group are those who live near the Columbia River and its many tributaries. In fact, most of the territory of the tribes were divided according to river valleys and watersheds. The area this cultural group lived in was central and eastern Washington, most of northern Idaho, and central Oregon. Essentially from the Cascade Mountains to the Rocky Mountains, with the exception of eastern Oregon. Some notable tribes were the Coeur d'Alene, Flatheads, Colville, Okanagan, Yakima, Klickitat, Umatilla, Walla Walla, Palouse, Nez Perce, Klamath, and Modoc. The names Nez Perce and Coeur d'Alene are derived from the French names for the Nimipu and Skitswish, respectively. I will use the former names, as that is the common name used now, but it should be noted that those are not the traditional names for those tribes. Natives of the Plateau often lived in small, semi-permanent fishing settlements, and so members of a tribe could be spread out across an entire river system or valley. The settlements were autonomous, and the people often elected their leaders democratically. This could vary from tribe to tribe, though. This decentralized system of government was confusing to the Euro-Americans who came into contact with the natives of the Plateau. Often they would make treaties or agreements with the chief of one village, but that chief did not speak for the tribe as a whole. This would cause issues when Euro-Americans began enforcing treaties that some communities believed they had never agreed to in the first place. Settlements would often come together to cooperate and trade with one another, or band together to wage war on shared enemies. They were also experienced hunters and gatherers and migrated regularly. Most of the natives of the plateau were not terribly concerned with territory or trespassers. However, the Nez Perce and Coeur d'Alene were. They defended their territories fiercely and attacked most anyone who invaded. The Nez Perce constantly fought against the Shoshone to the south. The Shoshone are members of our third and final cultural group, the natives of the Great Basin. The Great Basin comprises Eastern Oregon, Southern Idaho, and extends far into Nevada and Utah. This land is some of the most inhospitable regions in the United States. Most Native Americans who lived here formed small groups who were nomadic, rarely staying in one place for long. Food was scarce and could not sustain large populations or communities. The Shoshone were one of the best-off tribes in the Great Basin. They were among the first in the Pacific Northwest to acquire horses around the 1700s. Horses were not native to North or South America. The only large, domesticated animal that lived in the Americas was the llama. Horses didn't exist in the Americas until the Spanish brought them over from Europe in the 1500s. Spanish horses were among some of the finest horses in the world, and even today, most horses in North America are descended from the horses that came from Spain. Horses changed much for Native Americans. The Nez Perce, who acquired horses after the Shoshone, used them to travel 
to and from the Great Plains. There they hunted buffalo and discovered the use of teepees, which so many tribes of the Great Plains used and made famous. Food was so hard to come by in the Great Basin that many tribal groups were referred to by their main source of food. For instance, Shoshone sheep eaters, or the bitter root. The northern Paiutes, who lived in southeast Oregon and southwest Idaho, had no tribal unity. Small family bands constantly traveled in search of water, food, and firewood, digging up root vegetables and hunting small game. They never permanently settled or practiced agriculture, though they did create irrigation projects so that they could later return to areas and harvest what grew. There are two notable festivals that took place every year in the Pacific Northwest that I would like to talk about. One was held at the confluence of the Boise and Snake Rivers. This one was to celebrate fishing season. The other was a month-long trade fair at the Dalles along the Columbia River. During both, people from many different tribes would come together to meet. People would bring goods to trade, tools, there would be performances, dancing, gambling, and competitions of all kind. People journeyed far and wide to participate in these events. The natives even developed a trade language known as Chinook jargon. Chinook jargon was comprised of a few hundred common words and phrases that could be used to facilitate trade and bargain on prices. Being so far away from the regions of initial European contact, natives of the Pacific Northwest never saw a white man until almost the end of the 1700s, and for some, it wasn't until the 1800s. However, the people of the Northwest were still affected by that number one killer of Native Americans, disease. Smallpox, influenza, measles, and typhoid were among the deadliest. All these diseases developed in the old world of Europe, Africa, and Asia. Most Europeans had developed immunities due to generations of families surviving the disease. Smallpox, for instance, was still deadly, with the most severe strands having a 30% mortality rate, while less severe strands had only a 1% mortality rate. Old world diseases were brought over aboard ships from Spain at first, and later by other European settlers. Most people carried viruses with them, even if they weren't infected. Much like some mammals can carry rabies without experiencing symptoms. These diseases quickly infected and wreaked havoc upon Native American communities. It is estimated that anywhere between 80 to 90% of North and South America's native population was lost due to disease. If we prescribe to a North and South American population number of 60 or 90 million during 1500 AD, that puts the total death by disease between 48 to 56 million and 72 to 81 million respectively. Some tribes in the Pacific Northwest caught these diseases without ever having seen a white man. The Nez Perce experienced a smallpox epidemic in 1781 to 1782. How, you may wonder. Well, settlers on the east coast of North America traded with Native Americans often. Natives would pick up diseases from settlers in the process. When those Native Americans met and traded with other tribes further west, those people would be infected too. This process repeated itself until disease spread across the entire continent. Natives of the Columbia and Willamette Rivers died at alarming rates. The Chinook were decimated by disease, reduced to a tenth of their former population. What numbers don't tell us is the psychological and societal impact that disease left on Native Americans. Imagine all your extended family, friends, acquaintances, 
coworkers, and your community, what if 90% of them were to die suddenly and painfully? Native American communities had to look on in horror as children, parents, aunts, uncles, cousins, and friends died in agony. Not to mention society was shaken to its core as leaders, warriors, experienced craftsmen, and other specialized individuals were lost. The immense loss of life would go on to have a significant influence on Native Americans as their contact with Europeans increased. Many of the Native societies became more passive and less willing or able to challenge Euro-American dominance on the North American continent. Make no mistake, the Native Americans who did choose to fight and resist did so with valor, and in time we will hear their stories. It is curious to wonder how the story of North America would have played out if disease had not had such a devastating effect on the Native Americans. Or to wonder, what if the Native Americans had given the Europeans devastating diseases? Europeans likely would not have colonized the region. History is full of fascinating what-ifs. Unfortunately, we can never know for certain. Today, in the Northwest, there are several Native American reservations with complete sovereignty. Reservations have their own governments and are free to settle their own affairs. Washington State is home to 29 federally recognized tribes, Oregon is home to 9, and Idaho is home to 4. Many of these tribal nations worked hard to reestablish their languages and cultures, which were lost to the Native American boarding schools. However, I'm getting ahead of myself, and that will be the content of a future episode. The natives of the Northwest had varying experiences with Euro-Americans who they came in contact with. In time, though, they would be challenged for dominance of the land and be either forced to capitulate or fight back. I don't wish to condense those tales into a few paragraphs, so we will deal with them fully and in great detail when the time comes. Next time, we will see the first Europeans to set foot on the American continent, and some of the explorers who first gazed upon the Pacific Northwest. Soon, rival empires will compete with one another to claim the Pacific Northwest for their own. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you for listening.